This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. All right, so welcome to our uh, second talk in the Balance Practice series. It's okay if you weren't here for the first one. I actually want to start with a story, um, which is that there are three students sitting with a Dharma teacher, and one student says to the teacher, You have said that the path is like climbing a great mountain, requiring a lot of strength and diligence and effort. And the teacher says, you are correct. And the second student says, wait a minute. You also have said that the path is just like rolling down a hill. It should be completely effortless and just letting go of all that doing. And the teacher says, you are correct. And the third student says, wait a minute, they can't both be correct. And the teacher says, and you are also correct. (laughs) Okay, so what's going on here? (laughs) Today we're going to talk about um, the dimensions of uh, cultivation and letting go in practice. So starting with cultivation or effort or development... These aren't all identical words, but I'm lumping them into the same kind of practice. Uh, There is definitely no shortage in the teachings of suttas about making effort, about cultivating good qualities, developing persistence, diligence, keenness of mind, qualities of the heart. Um, This is really common throughout the teachings. And in fact, it's said that... um, the the term energy or effort, which is called virya in Pali, is the quality that appears in the most lists. Um, it's closely followed, I think, by concentration, but energy or effort is in many, many lists. So energy for practice is interestingly supported most directly by faith in the teacher or in the teachings, which could be also confidence or trust. You know, basically some sense that this is going to be a good thing to do. Why would you put effort into something that you didn't think was going to be worthwhile at all? Um, All day we put effort into things because we think there's going to be some effect, some result that's going to be useful to do or worthwhile or necessary. Uh, This is explicit, this link between confidence and Energy is explicit in the list of the five faculties, where those are the first two, and they're said to build on each other. But really, you can just understand it more generally, as I said, is that we put, we put effort into things that we think are going to be useful. So we have to have some degree of confidence. Now, one word that's used, I'm just going to start with the kind of the most dramatic word that's used in the teachings, often the word used is um, strive, okay, um, as 
how we should apply ourselves to doing practice. Here is um, just one quote from a, uh, from a sutta, from a written discourse. Out of regard for your own good, it is proper to strive with heedfulness. Out of regard for others' good, it is proper to strive with heedfulness. Out of regard for your own good and others' good, it is proper to strive with heedfulness. So, and then um, Sariputta's last words before he died were said to be, strive on with heedfulness. <laughs> People also um, say similar for the last words of the Buddha, although those are, in the translation I was reading, uh, the contrast with Sariputta's words is that the Buddhas were translated as, work out your deliverance with heedfulness. Very similar. So these are injunctions and exhortations from very wise, very powerful teachers. Strive on. (laughs) So it's interesting, though, to note that... um, even this striving is said to be striving with heedfulness. So there should be awareness and even wisdom behind our effort. It's not that the whole aim is just to work as hard as you can or just keep rolling that boulder up the hill like Sisyphus, was it? And, you know, that's the kind of effort just toiling on without thought. This is this is striving with heedfulness, so having some understanding. So we've um, managed to bring in both the faith and the inquiry that we talked about last week already, is that these both of these qualities stand behind proper effort. We're going to talk a little bit more later about that, but it's interesting to see that. Already that balance is preserved in the quality of making effort, making right effort. Now we're not just making all this effort because somebody told us to, or that we have some abstract ideal in mind. Um, I found this nice quote from uh, a book called The Questions of King Melinda. And it says, When the practitioner sees that the hearts of others have been set free, he leaps forward by way of aspiration to the various fruits of the holy life, and he makes efforts to attain the yet unattained, to find the yet unfound, to realize the yet unrealized. It's very beautiful. So this particular passage says that we're inspired because for all this because we see that other people have some degree of freedom. And we say, wow, I want that too. <laughs> that's a, maybe that's a blunt way of saying it, but that's, um, you know, that's really the implication. We're not meant to, you know, we're, we're meant to have some uh, sense of direction and some sense of, dare I say, desire for liberation. And I can say that for myself, when I first came to a Dharma group, like the very first time I came to sit with other people after I'd been sitting by myself for a while, what I noticed immediately in this little, um, sweet little Dharma group I went to was that the people who'd been there for a long time and were kind of the senior students of the group, what I noticed about them is that they seemed very self-confident, comfortable with themselves, I would say. Not, you know, arrogant and loud, but just really comfortable with themselves as people. And that struck me because at the time, I actually wasn't very comfortable with myself at that time. And so that was kind of what my heart latched onto as, oh, this is something that's worthwhile. 
that um, I would like to have also. And that was my my initial motivation among you know among some other ones, but that was my initial motivation for imitating or um, trying to be like the people that I saw, the senior students and teachers that I saw. So I can identify a little bit with this, resonate with this quote. So we're talking about all this effort and cultivation. In what areas are we to make effort? There are two main ones, and then I'll mention a third. The first area is ethical effort. So we are to be diligent about keeping the precepts, about remaining truthful, about being generous, you know, doing good actions, essentially. And we'll find, as we start to engage with that kind of practice, that there is some effort needed, actually. Maybe not in the gross sense, but, you know, refraining from killing people, for example. But, boy, you know, the habit of interrupting people, or the habit of... um, being impatient with somebody close to us about certain things that annoy us, it can be a long time to, and we really find that we have to apply effort sometimes to change those habits of mind. But making this kind of effort is very valuable. It purifies our actions, our speech, and even some of the main ways of thinking that we have as habits. If we study the ethical teachings about how to behave well in the world, you know, what are the qualities of right speech, what are the dimensions of right action, and then actually make some effort to do those things. My teacher likes to say that meditation only works if you do it. <laughs> a lot of people think it's a good idea. They have a book by the nightstand, they read every night. But um, it really works the best if you actually do it. And so there is some, sometimes there's some effort in establishing a daily practice, even. So that leads us then to the second area, second main area of making effort, which is developing qualities of the mind, such as the capacity for attention, um, concentration, uh, developing the capacity for insight, that we talked a little bit about last time with the inquiry um, part of the balance that we talked about. That is, um, that's a way to make the mind prone to having insights, if you will. So, this kind of effort, you know, the part that is different from just, um, I don't want to say just, but different from making ethical effort in the world, this kind of effort of sitting on the cushion and really... Um, developing the mind is a little bit deeper effort and it's said that only this kind of effort can purify our intentions or our underlying tendencies it's different to change your actions and your kind of behavior in the world and maybe their top level of thinking and it's uh, it's different to do that than to uh, really root out completely certain habits of the mind the Buddha's clear in some suttas that um, you can do a lot with ethical effort, but he's pretty clear that meditation is required for liberation, for the complete transformation of the heart to uh, not engaging in suffering anymore, not engaging in clinging and craving. 
So these are the main domains that are laid out for us. And there's lots and lots of instructions about how to do things in each of these domains. And then I'll just mention that for monastics, there's additional instructions um, about making effort to uphold the monastic rules and discipline. Um, Those don't apply as much to lay people. We have the precepts instead. But there's quite a lot in the suttas also about monks um, learning to really do the way of life that the Buddha was teaching. So you get the sense that that was also a little challenging and people needed to make some effort to to be able to do that. And I, you know, from the monastics I know today, I can can see that that is an area that requires some effort. That would be a big undertaking. Okay, so so here's another quote about, um, this is kind of a, one of those boilerplate or standard ways of talking about how we should make effort. One should arouse extraordinary desire, make an extraordinary effort, stir up zeal and enthusiasm, be unremitting, and exercise mindfulness and clear comprehension. So this is, you know, sort of standard phrasing for how we should be applying ourselves. Like your hair's on fire, you should really, uh, or your clothing or something... Um, so this is and then this is also let me shift slightly and say that there is a sutta there's also a sutta where uh, another wanderer one of those wanderers from another sect asserts that being accomplished in what is wholesome consists of doing no evil actions no evil speech no evil intentions and no wrong livelihood so he says to be accomplished in what is wholesome is to is the same as refraining from what is unwholesome. And the Buddha disagrees with this, actually. And he says that, um, well, by that logic, a young, tender infant lying prone uh, is accomplished in the wholesome because this, this a young, tender infant lying prone doesn't even speak, um, doesn't have a livelihood except, you know, gurgling and eating and so forth uh, doesn't have any possibility of, of you know deliberate intentions of evil so um, you know but he doesn't say that a, ten, a young tender infant lying prone is accomplished in the wholesome the Buddha has a higher standard for that so um, he goes on to say that a person must make effort he must arouse energy exert his mind and strive in order to develop the wholesome. So this is not merely a matter of refraining. Once again, we have the Buddha advocating active, actual effort to uh, bring about what is wholesome. And in this case, wholesome could mean could mean ethical effort. It can also mean the development of the mind, like concentration or um, or mindfulness. So we have this strong exhortation to make effort. But not all effort is actually right effort. So there's, um, or wise effort, I should say. Sometimes people are triggered by right as they think right and wrong. So I'll say wise or skillful effort. So there's a sense also, though, that the effort one makes should be aligned somehow and in the right direction, that it actually brings the results we're looking for. So the in the case of um, effort or practice, the Buddha often distinguished them by labeling them as 
various pairs. Um, the most common is wholesome and unwholesome. So kusala and akusala in Pali. So he would label, that's usually how it's translated, wholesome and unwholesome, sometimes skillful and unskillful. Um, there are other dichotomies too, using different words such as bright and dark effort or bright and dark action and righteous and unrighteous even. So it has a sense of that. It's interesting if you read suttas about effort or that are describing the way to act, the way to practice, the Buddha was often fairly black and white, fairly dualistic. Um, Tough guy, it starts to sound like. You know, this is right, this isn't right. This works, this doesn't work. He's very clear. You know, when I divided my thoughts into two, I just said they're the skillful ones and they're the unskillful ones, and that's it. So he's very, he's often trying to make these very clear distinctions. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure why that is. Uh, The Buddha was not big on absolutes. But in the case of these kinds of terms, he is. One possibility that has been suggested by a scholar is that this was out of uh, pragmatism, essentially. The Buddha teaches what works and what doesn't work. And he's not much interested in uh, philosophy and debate and that sort of thing, although he was happy to debate. But just pragmatism, you know, this is going to work for you, this is not going to work for you. That was kind of how he taught in this area. So there is, in the suttas, this strong emphasis on making effort. And I want to pull back a little bit now and say that here in the West, you may not have heard this, some of those phrases I described may have sounded a little um, tough to you, because they're not quoted that often in that degree of, you know, that degree of repetition. And in the West, we tend to emphasize ease to some degree. There's actually a conscious effort by some teachers in our tradition who have noticed that people in the West, or maybe people in the Bay Area, I don't know, are already strivers. (laughs) We come with a lot of that. We come with restlessness. We come with drivenness. I've heard it called a certain, because it's, you know, it's kind of in the air around here. Maybe maybe more so than in India 2,600 years ago, although I don't know, I wasn't there. But, you know, the just the way we live is a lot faster paced, a lot more achievement-oriented, a lot more individualistic um, than they had there. So this is my interpretation now, but my sense is that the Buddha might have felt like for that culture, what was needed was a little effort. <laughs> and... Truthfully, there is effort needed on this path. Um, But the way he talks about it with those terms of extraordinary effort, zeal and enthusiasm, unremitting, that can happen, but I think not by force of will. I guess I would say it that way. And so we're we're so into our will here. We think we're individual agents doing our lives to an extreme degree that we hear phrases like this and we think, oh, I need to do this. And so it may have been that that language worked better in a culture where people didn't think in the ways that we do. And so what you hear here more often is like what I did in the guided meditation. Bring some ease to your body. Relax. 
all that tension that you're carrying around open, um, soften. These kinds of phrases are often where we start. This is an effort also, though, if you may have noticed, um, when the mind really has a lot of go-at-it kind of energy, it's a little bit of effort, like like walking a dog that's bounding forward on the leash. You know, you've got to kind of calm it down, hold it back a little bit, and there's some effort in that. So I think we still need a lot of effort. I don't think you get around effort on this path, but we might need to apply it a little bit differently than the language you sometimes hear in the suttas. So so it's it's interesting to teach that way, to teach people to make effort to be more at ease. So it's true also, though, that in the teachings, now moving on to the idea of letting go and of easing up, um, more like the second situation in the little story I told at the beginning, we're not climbing the mountain, we're rolling down the hill, you know, just letting things unfold, stopping all that doing. There actually are instructions in the teachings about this also, um, it happens that they tend to come later in the practice, you know, in the sort of sequence of how things unfold. Often it's effort at the beginning to establish concentration, to establish a regular practice, to establish one's ethics, to get some strength in the practice, basically. And then there's letting go, and there's letting be, and there's allowing the practice to unfold. So the later stages of concentration and insight practice are characterized by letting go and by letting be. This is also called by various words that you may have heard, abandoning, disenchantment, dispassion, the mind becoming equanimous and still. This can't be done through active effort. Okay, At some point, you've... uh, You've got the skateboard going and you need to stop and just keep rolling on it. (laughs) Um, Or you've got the bike going, stop pedaling. Um, That comes at some point. There's a story of Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, um, who lived on for a while after the Buddha died. But he took him a long time. He wasn't enlightened yet. He had reached the first stage of enlightenment fairly soon and kind of persisted there for a very long time while he was the Buddha's attendant for years and years and then the Buddha died and he continued on teaching some students but also just practicing with the Sangha um, still at the first stage of awakening. And there came to the point where the they were going to have a council to talk about the, you know, to really sort of codify and remember the and unify the Buddha's teachings after he died. And Ananda was the one who remembered them all. That was his job. He actually had an incredible memory, was said. And actually, every teaching that he heard, he memorized. And so he was the carrier of them. So Ananda was going to be invited to um, speak uh, the whole canon of teachings. Of course, I mean, other people knew the teachings also, but he knew all of them. But the arahants, so the fully enlightened beings, said, you know, he's not an arahant. I don't know if we should invite him. You know, he's, uh, he's not really there. And so they said to him, we're going to meet in the morning, but if you're not an arahant, 
you can't come. <laughs> and so, boy, life's tough, isn't it? And so um, he stayed up all night. He said, all right, that's it. I'm going to do it. So he stayed up all night. Actually, the Buddha had told him when the Buddha was dying, make the effort, Ananda. You can do it. You can, you can become enlightened. So he sat up all night practicing and practicing. And near dawn, he just got so tired and he wasn't free yet. And so he said, all right, I'm just going to get a little bit of sleep. And it said that when he gave up and was lowering his head toward the pillow, he woke up. <laughs> so this is maybe metaphorical, but I think it's, has, it's pretty good that there's a lot of effort and there's really a lot of will and determination and desire. And then at some point you have to give that up. You can't give it up artificially with the idea of, okay, now if I give it up, I'm going to get enlightened. You have to really, <laughs> you have to actually get to the point where you, you give up the effort. And that's when things can happen. There's an interesting conversation also documented between uh, Sariputta and Anuruddha. Sariputta was uh, fully enlightened at this time, and Anuruddha was not. He was just a little bit below. He was a non-returner. And he, um, so Anuruddha comes to Sariputta, and he complains, uh, basically, that he says, look, I've got all the supernormal powers. I have unremitting energy, mindfulness, and concentration, and still I am not liberated. Um, so he's a little frustrated. And Sariputta says, friend, when you think energy is aroused in me without slackening, my mindfulness is established without confusion, my body is tranquil without disturbance, my mind is concentrated and one-pointed, this is your restlessness. So essentially, isn't that interesting? He says, my body is tranquil without disturbance. And Sariputta says, this is part of your restlessness. But the restlessness is not that his body is tranquil, it's that he's thinking about that. He's thinking, I've got all this energy, I've got all this mindfulness, everything's tranquil, why isn't it happening? And Sariputta reminds him that very thought, um, even if your mind is in a pure concentrated state, if you're thinking about it and analyzing it and basically arousing, sort of arous- trying to arouse more energy and mindfulness, this eventually amounts to restlessness. It's, this is, these are the exact terms, pretty much, close to the exact terms that were said earlier that what you should do, you should develop unremitting mindfulness, you should arouse your energy. But there comes a point where that amounts to restlessness and there's a need to let go we're getting in our own way by applying effort at some point. So Sariputta's advice, after naming that this is basically restlessness, which is, by the way, the last hint, one of the last fetters to go, um, is that he says to Anuruddha, turn your mind toward the deathless. You know, turn your mind toward freedom, toward Nibbana, toward that which doesn't have any restlessness in it. And so as these stories go, Anuruddha does that and becomes an arahant. Um, but he's able to understand that you know, he, had, he had gotten himself right there at the brink, but then he had to let go. And something else happens at that moment. Um, we're, not, we're not doing that at that point. 
So now here's something interesting. Sometimes the suttas even say to abandon wholesome states of mind. What does that mean? In in MN78, one of the Mahajama Nikaya discourses, the Buddha recommends that we practice for the cessation of wholesome intentions. Why would he say that? <laughs> it's not stated directly in the sutta, but a later part of the text implies that the aim is not to identify with wholesome actions and mind states. So he says a practitioner is virtuous but does not identify with his virtue and so forth. And from this comes to understand the cessation of the wholesome. So this is a little bit different way of saying what was just talked about with Sariputta and Anuruddha a little bit is that you know there comes a point where yeah, we're, we're supposed to do wholesome actions. Please don't stop doing wholesome actions. Um, please don't think that abandoning the wholesome means that you go out and break all the precepts. But the idea is that abandoning doesn't mean getting rid of. Abandoning often means just opening the hand and not holding on to something anymore. Um, so it's free, you know, resting in the palm instead of gripped, basically. And so... He's saying that even our goodness, you know, we're going to develop ourselves to be very good, very meritorious. This is part of developing the wholesome, kind, beautiful heart and beautiful qualities of the mind, like concentration. But if we think, I have this, I am an amazingly adept practitioner, that is, in the end, going to hang you up. Um, And so there's a point where we let go and we, we realize even all of this is not mine. It's not something I've gotten and attained somehow. So this is part of the subtlety of letting go, is that we do all these things, but it's not us doing them. You know, we can't take credit for the beautiful things that unfold on the path for us. When the mind is close to liberation, even beautiful states have to be let go of as states that we possess and cherish we can't attain pure wholesomeness and hold on to it as our fixed identity. Sorry. <laughs> uh. Another lovely image about letting go and understanding that function on the path is um, a, a simile about heartwood. Um, the metaphor used is the metaphor of heartwood. Heartwood being the very core of a tree. It's the very the most valuable wood in the very middle, the best and highest quality wood. So, you know, that's useful. And it stands, of course, for the best and highest spiritual attainment. You know, that's what it's representing in the stories. But there's a beautiful sutta where um, to get to the heartwood, the person is seeking heartwood, so they're wanting that. But they encounter twigs and leaves on the tree. They encounter the outer bark, the inner bark, and the softwood before they get to the heartwood. And these all um, represent things that are found along the path. So, for example, uh, the leaves and twigs are gain and praise. So, you know, when we begin on the path, we may be told, people say, oh, meditation, I've always wanted to meditate. I'm so glad you're doing that. And so you get a little, you know, you know, of course, some other people might say, "What? You're totally crazy." But there's, you know, there's often some sense of that. Um, and then, other things gained on the path that are mentioned 
along the way are virtue, concentration, and even insight. And each of these represent the outer bark, the inner bark, and the softwood. You know, getting closer, virtue is good, but we have to go through that to get to the inner bark, which is the concentration, and we go through that to get to the softwood, which is the insight, the deep insights that we can have in practice. And the message of the sutta is don't stop with the outer bark or the inner bark or even the softwood. Don't stop until you get to the heartwood. And so, and what a person attains at that point is said, the translation is perpetual deliverance. So you get to the point where letting go is continuous. You know, you've found the heartwood, the ability to let go at any moment, which is freedom. I think this is an interesting sutta in that it combines images of attaining and images of letting go. So you do have to do work. You're thinking about getting to the inside of a tree. You've got to cut. You know, there's some effort in getting through that outer bark, that inner bark, that softwood. And you're going to have each of these things along the way. You're going to feel it, touch it, be it. But you don't stop there. You keep going. Uh, keep going, keep going until you get to the very center. In my own practice some of the most powerful things that I've realized that I've cultivated were actually instances of letting go. So as example, um, for a long time I was triggered by the noisy atmosphere at family gatherings. Actually, even before I started practicing, it was stressful. Um, I, just, I have one branch of my family is a little boisterous. And um, then it became even more so once I started meditating, right? <laughs> that didn't get better right away. Um, but at some point, I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I was practicing for the purpose of being able to tolerate this, but at some point I realized, oh, this doesn't trigger me anymore. This is not a problem. Um, so I had the capacity to just be with it. I mean, I wouldn't seek it out, but... Um, yeah, but it was fine to be with. So surely this is a cultivation of something. It's a cultivation of basically attentional strength, meditative capacity to be with something that's unpleasant in that moment. But it expresses itself as freedom, as a letting go, freedom from noise, right? The ability to just let it pass through. So there's something that has been let go, actually. There's definitely a feeling that what has been let go was my... Uh, agitation around that you know I don't have to react to this so something got cultivated but the result was that there was a letting go does that make sense yeah so this is a pair and so there's an implication that there's some balance between these two Um, they're both part of the path and part of the training I would say that there are different ways to see Um, to see this balance. One of them could be that we do more cultivation at some points in our practice and more letting go at other points in our practice. Um, This is how, this relates back to that initial story I told, this is how both of the students can be right. So yes, the path is about climbing the mountain and straining and all of that. Those are classic images for a spiritual path. And it might be that there are whole long years of your practice where that's what you're doing. And so that is the path. And then there may be whole 
periods where it's all about letting go. You know, you're simplifying, you're, or maybe you're, it's, it can be a glorious time of just letting go and feeling like, ah, oh, there's more and more ease happening. I don't have to do anything. Things just unfold. There can be long periods like that too. And so um, the balance comes about in that we have, you know, different ones at different times in our lives. It's also possible that um, we can see this balance by understanding that all cultivation is a letting go of something else. So you're not, this is a little different way of seeing it. So you would see it as, I could, be, I could see what I'm doing as cultivation or I could see it as letting go. So for example, uh, to develop loving kindness, let's say I want to develop the Brahma Viharas, beautiful qualities of the heart. I want to develop goodwill and friendliness. To do so, I have to let go of ill will and anger. So I'm cultivating this quality that I know is good and beautiful, and to do so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go of this darker, not useful, painful part of me. And then there's the flip side, you know, can we see letting go as a cultivation? Actually it is. Even if we're practicing letting go, you know, we're in a situation we feel ourselves starting to cling and we choose instead to let go. We are cultivating renunciation, for example. We're cultivating dispassion. We're cultivating non-clinging through uh, actively intending to let go which can be done. <laughs> there are parts of, you know, there's kinds of letting go that we can't do that way. But if we're practicing, oh, when I feel myself getting tense around my sister, I'm going to just relax. And, you know, you can do practice like that. And that's basically letting go practice. But you're cultivating renunciation. You're cultivating dispassion. You're cultivating non-clinging. So this second way of understanding the balance is that Whatever we're cultivating, we're letting go of something else, and whatever we're letting go of, we're cultivating renunciation or something similar. So they're just two sides of a hand, basically. And and we can just choose to emphasize one or the other in how we think about it. And then maybe a third way of understanding how these relate and how they balance is to understand that the only relevant effort, the only wise effort, is the effort to put conditions in place that make letting go possible and likely. So there's effort that leads toward letting go, and there's effort that doesn't. (laughs) And that could be the distinction between skillful and unskillful. So all the effort that we make, and there is effort, is because we understand that we want our mind to be able to open, um, to be able to get to the point where it can see something it's never seen before, to attain the as yet unattained, to realize the as yet unrealized. And all the effort needs to go toward the point where the mind can do that, can fully let go. And it's a process. You know, we go through multiple letting goes every day, (laughs) and sometimes some bigger ones. And we understand that the aim of all of our effort is for that final letting go. In the end, letting go is the king because the final letting go is the abandonment of everything without any corresponding quality to it. Uh, Nibbana doesn't have a counterpart. So so effort, necessary but not sufficient, I think, for those who like that kind of phrasing. 
So as I did last time, I'm going to offer some reflection questions for you. Um, so consider, for example, you might think about something that you're that needed to be cultivated on your path up to now, or something you are currently cultivating. You know, can you think of anything like that, and how are you going about doing that? Is it something deliberate? Are you reading books about it? Are you doing specific practices in your sitting? Something that needs to be cultivated. And then we can consider also something that has let go or that has been abandoned on your path up to now. And even if your path started an hour and a half ago, (laughs) something has been let go. Um, You may notice that you feel a little calmer right now than you did when you arrived. Something got let go, some agitation. Or if you learned something, um, there may have been a letting go of some misunderstanding or some confusion. What does letting go feel like? Did you make it happen? And what conditions support, seem to support letting go for you? And then another reflection is... um, how do you see the balance of cultivation and letting go in your practice? Or is your practice mostly about one, mostly about the other? Do you feel like you do both of them at different times? Um, and how do you see, yeah, how do you see them balancing? Are you out of balance right now? Too much striving? Or a uh, little too slack? Too much letting go? Um, or not enough. Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll wind down there um, and just point out that this is an area where I think I think it's something that we're going to work with a long way on the path. <laughs> um, the effort and the letting go because the path changes as we walk it. And so, you know, what we need to do at any given time, first of all, isn't always clear. (laughs) Um, And also it's going to change because this act of letting go and opening up and starting to develop things then shifts the sands. It shifts the ground under us. It shifts who we are in the world. And so then we find ourselves in different conditions and then we might need to try something different. You know, I've had times where I thought, I thought I knew uh, what was going on. And then by the very fact that I had reached some transition point, I reached some point, you know, something changed, and I had no idea what was going on. And, you know, if I needed to do more or do less, for, you know, there might have been, there are times when it's just not that clear. And so mindfulness is always the balancer. And just if you can't f- you know, figure it out or feel like you're not sure, just be mindful of that, and somehow something's going to open. It'll be clear what needs to happen or not happen. Okay, does anyone have uh, comments or questions?
A relief when we let go, yes. It's a joy, and you kind of look back and say, why was I in that? <laughs> How, why was I clinging on to that? Yeah. What, what a waste of time. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> for, for me, that sense, um, there is a lot of relief and joy also in letting go and in realizing that I didn't need something that I thought I did or I don't need to be doing something that I thought I needed to for some reason and just letting, being able to let go of that. And then there's a little bit of, there's certainly an opportunity there for compassion also and say, wow, you know, I was really caught up in that. And then I can see more easily when other people are caught up in that and I know what it's like. And there's some humility too because at the time I thought that was needed <laughs> I thought that was good and useful and then to let go and realize oh that wasn't so useful I wonder what else I don't know <laughs> I wonder what else I'm unwise about so yeah this, thank you for bringing that up and sometimes it seems that when you let go of things it makes space for other great things to happen yeah. come, in, come in somehow Definitely, so opening, yeah, can allow new things to come. It also allows things <clears throat> deeper in our heart that we have to work with to come to the surface. So um, I've had periods where there was a nice letting go and openness and joy for a while, and then that opened the next layer to come up and need to be processed, which is good. And there, there actually comes a point in practice where you would rather see all that stuff than not see it. Because if you don't see it, it's controlling you uh, from behind the scenes. And if you see it, you've got a chance. <laughs> they say peel, like peeling back an onion. Peeling an onion, yeah. You're going to go through various layers. Yeah. Nice image. Sure. I, I was trying to kind of halfway repeat what people were saying, but if we have a microphone, I didn't realize we did. Okay. <laughs> um, just, I was upset at one point in my life because someone else, someone else brought the, the anger into my life. Mm. I'm not generally an angry person, and I didn't like that, me. But this person was bringing it into my life. And I didn't know how to <laughs> squelch her efforts. Mm. Um, it was actually a daughter-in-law. And it was a very sad divorce. And there was a lot of animosity. And so it made me so... Um, I couldn't let it go. Mm. And it ate and ate and ate to the point where... I went into two and a half years of depression. Mm. And I let that happen from somebody else, mm. sending all this negative uh, emotions and energy toward me. And it was, I really looked at that and went, oh my God, I totally lost myself for two mm. and a half years. I would sit outside a grocery store for an hour before I could go in. It was so bad. Mm. And I've never, never had experienced anything like that in my life. But I... 
I said to my son, we're going to take the high road. But taking that high road, but then being attacked all the time was just almost unbearable. But I, I feel good that we took the high road. You know, we were kind. Mm-hmm. We were nice. We never said anything negative. We didn't spread rumors. We didn't, we didn't do any of that. So inside, we feel much better, you know. I think we're on a higher plane. <laughs> this is a beautiful example of effort in letting go, actually, because it takes a lot of effort to uh, stand up in that way um, and to let go of... You know, my daughter pointed out when she said, we're too nice. We don't, we don't come back like that mm. And so, you know, we're going to be badgered here, but okay, we're going to... We know who we are. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. At the same time, growth. Yeah. May I may I use um, jump off from that to make another point, another teaching point, um, which is that I because I, I see kind of an analogy here is that we have in our mind, our own mind, forces like this sometimes that can come in and tell us things in our mind. I'm not talking about like psychiatry, voices in the mind, but much of the effort that we're making in practice is to overcome habits of our mind, really. You know, things that we developed in childhood or or whatever it is, but we have a habit of getting angry, we have a habit of getting sad. Um, And this can be kind of unremitting and we can feel like, oh, this is just biting at me. And the effort is to, you called it, take the high road, but that's exactly what the Buddha was talking about with making ethical effort and making effort to cultivate the mind, is not to fall into those mental habits, like, oh, I get so impatient, I'm not going to, you know, when that comes knocking at the door, I'm not going to go with that. And over time, it eventually goes away. The situation changes, but it might be hard along the way to um, overcome that habit. So whether the forces are external, and now I'm saying the same internal forces, it's the same skill, the skill you develop through that experience um, is actually exactly the skill that the Buddha is talking about. Beautiful, thank you. The aim is the transformation of our mind. Any other comments, Sasha? It might be nice if we ended five minutes early. Okay. If anybody has. We have time for a little more, um, and then if we need to end a little early because of getting the equipment back and stuff, yeah. Um, One of the um, strong habits (laughs) that practice um, brought to me was to to take a good look at how things don't always have to be the way I think they should be. Mm-hmm. And um, there are just so many areas of my life where that played out, both at work, in relationships. And after I had uh, been meditating for quite a while... I was finally able to uh, look at that. And what I noticed at work um, was 
how when I let go of my mindset that my way was the best way, um, that um, other people had incredible ideas. And I was uh, able to be um, a much uh, more involved team member. Mm. And it also helped uh, to release a strong uh, tendency I had, which I didn't realize, of my competitiveness. Mm. And um, so it, I, it, it, we just we don't know how, how things are going to play out once we start letting go or once we start paying attention. Um, it, the impact can be like a... A domino, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's 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 uh, it's still you know, it's still working its way in in inside of me and in my life, and uh, it's wonderful. Mm, thank you. Okay. Well, I think we'll I think we'll end there then. I wish you all a wonderful week of cultivation and letting go and finding that balance. Hopefully plenty of letting go. <laughs> and uh we'll be back next week to continue the series. Thanks everyone. Oh, the topic is um on the cushion and in the world. Yeah. And then that's not even the last one cuz Shyla and Richard are going to continue on after that there's more to do thanks everyone Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.